Valley Bible Church. Not one Christmas song this morning, not a one. That's okay. I like it. We keep it going. We're in the 14th day of Christmas or something. I'm not sure. But anyway, good to see you all this morning. I know that uh, it doesn't really hit me the whole end of Christmas season when I'm taking down the lights from the tree and it's like, where did it go? It went so fast. In the beginning, it seems like it's going to last forever. But we are getting back uh, to our normal um, rhythm of things, the Valley Bible Church, back in the book of 1 Corinthians uh, this morning. And um, we're going to read the scripture in just a moment. Before we do that, I would like us to pray and ask God's gracious blessings on our time here this morning. So would you pray with me? Father, we are grateful this morning for the songs that we have sung, the great confession, the great creed of the apostles. We believe in God the Father. We believe in Christ the Son. We believe in the Holy Spirit. We believe in these things, Lord, because your Holy Spirit has made them known to us, inscripturated them for us, taught them to our hearts, given us new life and the ability to understand. To that task, we turn this morning, Lord, not just to, to know, but to believe and to do and to be changed, to be more like Jesus Christ, our Lord, in this New Year's. We know that we cannot do this on our own. We know that is a ministry of sanctification by the Holy Spirit of God. Guide us into truth this morning, we pray. We ask that as we open the word that you would encourage us, that we would leave here this morning more like Jesus Christ. So it is in his name that we pray all these things now. Amen. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. We are going to be looking at the first three verses in uh, 1 Corinthians 12, but we're going to read uh, verses 1 through 11 so you have a little bit more of the context. So if you have your Bibles or some form in a tablet or on your phone or whatever, and you are able to, would you join me in standing that we might honor the reading of God's word by our, our actions this morning in giving him the honor that is due. 1 Corinthians Chapter 12, we are reading verses 1 through 11, the Word of God. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. Therefore, I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God says, Jesus is accursed, and no one can say, Jesus is Lord, except by the Holy Spirit. Now, there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are varieties of ministries, but the same Lord. There are varieties of effects, but the same God, who works all things in all persons. But to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to each one is given the word of wisdom through the Spirit, and to another the word of knowledge according to the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, and to another gifts of healing by the one Spirit, to another the effecting of miracles, to another prophecy, to another the distinguishing of spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, and to another the interpretation of tongues. But one and the same Spirit works all these things distributing to each one individually just as he wills. And God's people said, Amen. Amen. Thank you. Would you please be seated? 
as I ask you the question, what is the role of the Holy Spirit? The role of the Holy Spirit is uh, very, very important, but what is the role of the Holy Spirit? Um, There's a lot of confusion about the Holy Spirit. There is a lot of error. There is a lot of neglect. Sometimes we may neglect the role of the Holy Spirit. Each of us do sometimes in our own lives. But how is the Holy Spirit involved in your individual life? And when we come together, even right now, when we read scripture, when we sing songs, when we fellowship, when we listen to the message, how is the Holy Spirit involved in our worship? What are the gifts of the Spirit? Do they all exist today as they did in the times of the apostles? Does every Christian have a gift? Does every Christian have the Holy Spirit? Is there more that you need to get from the Holy Spirit once you become a Christian? Are you lacking in something? The next three chapters of 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14, very controversial throughout church history, particularly the last uh, 50, 60, 100 years in America and throughout the world, but they were very controversial in Corinth as well, this idea of gifts of the Spirit. Now, before we jump, to, jump into these three verses, uh, just a bit of review. Um, what we've been looking at, we're coming back into 1 Corinthians, and just look back from the very beginning, we saw some of the issues that Paul was dealing with, divisions, wisdom of the gospel. Remember, he said, the, the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who are, of us who are being saved, it is the, it is the wisdom of God. So divisions. Wisdom of the gospel. We should have them up on the screen here. Um, Wisdom of spiritual maturity. They were acting like unbelievers. The idea of sexual immorality, lawsuits, marriage, eating meat, sacrifice to idols, gender roles in worship. And the last thing we left with, the Lord's Supper. We saw that right before Advent. And in every instance, in every one of these topics, they were problems. They needed correction in the church at Corinth. That's why the very title of our series is Truth for the Troubled Church. The church in Corinth was very troubled. They were divided, and they were divided over these issues. And the next issue that he's going to deal with, they're divided in this as well. So moving forward, what we're looking at going ahead, chapters 12 through 14 we're going to be talking about the gifts of the Spirit in chapters 12 through 14. We begin this morning. I don't know how long it will take us to get through it, but basically the idea is this. What he will deal with is edification. Edification is a word that means to build up. And the body of Christ, the church of God, is to be built up and to grow more and more into the image of Christ. The, the, The place of love. He devotes chapter 13 called the love chapter, But we have to understand that the love chapter, 1 Corinthians 13, was not penned for marriage ceremonies, wedding ceremonies. It had to do with the church and the ministry of these gifts. Chapter 14 is going to deal with the proper role of the Holy Spirit in proper worship. So that's where we have been and that's where we're going. And so right now we're just jumping right into verse 1 of chapter 12 where we're going to look at the essential role of the Holy Spirit. I'm telling you right now, his role is essential. We know that, 
But Paul is going to say the essential role of the Holy Spirit. He's going to lay that out for us. Verse 1. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware. The word unaware means ignorant. I don't want you to be without knowledge. Now concerning is is, is a phrase that Paul has used over and over again in chapters 7 through 8. He used these, this word, now concerning this, now concerning meat sacrificed to idols, now concerning spiritual gifts. He used those things numerous times to address questions that the Corinthians had asked of him. There had been correspondence going back and forth between the church at Corinth and between the Apostle Paul. And they had asked these questions. The, the problem is we don't have the questions. We have the answers. It's kind of like, Biblical jeopardy, you know. Uh, Now concerning spiritual gifts. Um, What is the role of the Holy Spirit? Yes, Ben Orchard for 100. You got it, right. So that's kind of what these now concerning, now concerning, now concerning. He raises. They know what he's talking about. He knows what they're talking about. But we have to fill in the blanks a little bit. Now concerning spiritual gifts. Notice on the screen the word gifts is in italics. We, are, we use the New American Standard Bible in preaching, and one of the, the features of the New American Standard, in part because it's very literal, is that if a word appears in the text that does not appear in the original, it is in italics. It's not there for emphasis. We use italics for emphasis. But in the New American Standard Bible, when a word is in italics, that means it, it is not in original, in the original Greek. So Paul literally say, says, Now concerning spiritual. The word gifts is supplied because in verse 4 he is going to talk about the gifts of the spirit, the word charisma. And he's going to be talking about that and numerous times he will use that word. But he does not use that word yet. He just says now concerning spiritual. It is the word pneumatikos. Pneuma is the word for spirit, the holy pneuma. Pneuma means breath or spirit or wind. Now concerning the things of the spirit, and that's what pneumatikos means. Spiritual things, spiritual matters, things of the spirit, spirituality, spiritual people. And here, yes, in the larger context, he's going to talk about spiritual gifts. But Paul uses this word more than any other place uh, in the Bible, in 1 Corinthians. So in verse 4, he is going to say, Now there are varieties of charisma, but the same spirit. Charisma is the word for gifts, gifts of the spirit. We often talk about a person who has charisma. They have a magnetic personality. We often talk about uh, the charismatic movement, and that's where the charismatic movement comes from, is from this work, charisma. Um, however, what we need to understand, and we're not going to be able to go through all of the, the gifts of the Spirit this morning. We're just given an, an introductory material, and we'll talk about the nature of tongues later. But scholars agree, as stated by Gordon Fee, who says this, the problem is almost certainly an abuse of the charisma of tongues. The gift of tongues, the charisma of tongues, this is the thing that has been causing division in the church at Corinth. 
and many of the Corinthians because of their pagan background in mystery religions. And in many of those mystery religions, people spoke in what are called glossolalia. They spoke in tongues, not we'll we'll differentiate what the word tongues means when we come to that. But this was something that was practiced in the mystery religions in Corinth. And so the Corinthians, many of them, saw speaking in tongues as the ultimate manifestation of the Holy Spirit. That if you have the gift of glossolalia, speaking in tongues, that is the ultimate. And the problem with the Corinthians is everything needed to be the ultimate. They were in competition with one another. They were arrogant. They were puffed up. And if, if, pardon me, if someone spoke in tongues, it was showy, it would call attention to people, and they had a tendency to put down people who could not speak in tongues, did not, and had other gifts of the Spirit. So this inflated their spiritual egos, and it added to their spiritual pride, and thus you had division in the church. So Paul's task with the subject of spiritual things... Is to show, he wants to, number one, he wants to show the criteria of the presence of the Holy Spirit. Is it just that people speak in tongues? Is that how we know that the Spirit is working? Paul is going to say no. And he's also going to show the diverse working of the ministry of the Holy Spirit in the church in every believer, not in just those who spoke in tongues. Tongues was the flashpoint in, in Corinth, and tongues have been a flashpoint in controversy in churches in which you have been in, I'm sure. Um, I, want you to, I want to tell you just very briefly, we, we can't go into great detail yet, but along we'll, the way we will get more information, what our position is as a church. We are in the category of what is called cessationist. We believe in the cessation of the miraculous gifts of the apostolic age. The miraculous sign gifts passed from the scene when the apostles died, when they were either martyred or they just died. And once the apostles were gone, those, apo- those apostolic gifts were gone. Why do we believe that? We'll, we'll give you more information when we go along, but here are a couple of things to understand. This is the only letter that Paul wrote, and he wrote most of the New Testament, This is the only letter written by the Apostle Paul where tongues are mentioned. In fact, it's the only letter at all in the New Testament where tongues are mentioned. They're not mentioned in the epistles of Peter, James, John, Hebrews, Jude. They're not mentioned at all. The only place that tongues are mentioned is one obscure verse at the end of the book of Mark, that is suspect. Some people think it does not really, not even really a, an adequate, um, uh, have adequate support to be in, in the scriptures. So that one obscure verse in the book of Acts, of course, and in the book of First Corinthians. That's all. First uh, Corinthians was one of the first books written. James was first written, then First and Second Thessalonians, and First Corinthians. So obviously tongues were in operation at the time. But could it be that when all the other epistles were written, even by that time, many of these gifts had been falling from the scene? It is possible. So about that, since we believe that 
with the passing of the apostles was the passing of the apostolic miraculous gifts, uh, we need to answer a few objections. And first of all, we are not anti-supernatural. I mean, rather, we are not anti-spiritual gifts. People say, well, you don't believe in the gifts of the Spirit. Yes, we do believe in the gifts of the Spirit. And Paul mentioned some of those gifts, and Ephesians mentioned some of those gifts, and, and Peter mentioned some of those gifts. And we believe that every Christian in this room, in our church, who truly knows Jesus Christ as Savior, the Spirit of God lives in you, and He has given you a specific ability to minister in the church. It is a supernatural gift, and we believe in the gifts of the Spirit. Second of all, we are not anti-supernatural. Some say, well, you don't believe in the supernatural things. Of course we believe in supernatural things. Christianity by, very, by nature is supernatural. Salvation is a miracle of God where an individual who is dead in their trespasses and sins is made alive together with Christ. The new birth is, is effected by the Holy Spirit. And that spiritually dead person coming to faith and being born again is a supernatural event. Prayer is a supernatural event. Whenever we address God, He is the, the greatest absolute Lord being of the universe and He hears us and He acts in time and space on our behalf. That is supernatural. It is supernatural, and I've said this many times and I'll say it again, blows my mind that God's Spirit lives in us. How can that be? The same Spirit that was the pillar of fire, the same Spirit that filled the temple with this cloud, the, the, the same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, lives in every believer. That is supernatural. And that same Spirit leads us to Christ. And He grows us in sanctification into the likeness of Jesus Christ. And yes, this is all very, very supernatural. And we are not anti-miracle. God can do whatever He wants whenever He wants to. And I have seen uh, answers to prayer sometimes that I believe were miracles. And every time someone is, is ill in the hospital and we send out our prayer requests, we pray for healing. And we really believe that if God so chooses, He can heal someone. We believe that. We believe in miracles. We are invited to pray by God, to pray in the name of Christ, and we, we better believe that God can do uh, even what we ask of Him because we know that He can do far beyond whatever we could even ask or think, and that is miraculous. So people say that we put God on a box. We do not put God on a box. Again, I'll say again, God can do whatever he wants, whenever he wants to do it, and sometimes he does, and it just blows us away. But God will always do what is consistent with his will, and he will always do what is consistent with his word. For instance, can God destroy the earth with a flood? Trick question. He is able to, but he cannot because he has covenanted with all of mankind that he will not. So you see, God just doesn't do anything willy-nilly. It always is in, in, in alignment with his word. He set the rainbow in the sky, 
And he told all of mankind, I will never destroy the earth again. So when you see the rainbow, it is not an LGBTQ symbol. It is our symbol. It is a symbol of the covenant of God with his people that he's not going to ever uh, destroy the earth with water. So that doesn't put God in a box. And some people say, well, the reason that we don't see miracles at Valley Bible Church is because we don't have enough faith. That puts God in a box. Because that means God's performance is dependent upon how much faith I have, how much faith the person has that we're praying for. It is a distortion of prayer and the place of faith. We're never never given a blank check. But we believe God can work miracles. Even a casual reading of the New Testament tells you that the miraculous gifts that we see in the life of Jesus and the life of the, the apostles, we don't see those today. I don't believe I can go down to Sacred Heart Hospital and start praying for people and emptying the rooms. And I don't think that there's anyone who can. But I think Peter could have, and I think Paul could have, and Jesus definitely could have, But we don't see that today. That's not the kind of miracles. We don't see people raised from the dead after four days like Lazarus. We don't see people born with a withered hand and they they stretch it out and it's new like like baby's flesh. We don't see a person born blind and can see through some kind of miraculous. Instead we see I had a backache and now it's gone. I had a depression and God relieved it. God does those things, yes. But they are not the kind of miracles that we see in the New Testament. And we are not anti-people with whom we disagree or who disagree with us. And if you are a Valley Bible Church and you have a different view of these things, that does not mean we are divided The thing that unites us that we see in this passage is that we declare that Jesus is Lord. And that's what unites us. We have differences of theology with people about eschatology and spiritual gifts and views of the atonement. But if we believe that Jesus is Lord and all that that means, we are united. That's what unites us in Christ. By the way, if you want to uh, read a very biblically accurate and charitable treatment of this, J.I. Packer has an excellent book called Keep in Step with the Spirit. Keep in Step with the Spirit by J.I. Packer. Very charitable to um, our Pentecostal and charismatic friends, um, but also very biblical and um, very right on. So, all right. One more thing about this idea of um, charisma. The history. The Pentecostal charismatic movement developed in the United States in the early 1900s. In the late 1800s, there were a few outbreaks of what people believed were speaking in tongues, but it wasn't until the 1901, 1906, of all places, Los Angeles, California, that's where the Pentecostal charismatic movement started. That's a historical fact. So throughout church history, until the 20th century, in America, there was no Pentecostalism. There was no charismatic church. So 
we, we need to understand that this is a recent development on the historical scene. So we want to avoid extremes. One extreme is God is doing miracles all the time and there's a demon under every bush and those kinds of things. But the other extreme is that anything supernatural is automatically suspect. That's not true. We don't want an overly mystical view of spiritual gifts, nor do we want a sterile, pragmatic view that's just propositional church. We believe in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Scriptures. No, the Holy Spirit who gave us the Scriptures. So, we believe in miracles. But Paul is saying, back to our text, now concerning spiritual gifts, I do not want you to be unaware. The Holy Spirit's role needs to be clearly understood. He doesn't want them to to miss out on the importance of the ministry of the Holy Spirit in the church in all those spiritual matters. And he is introducing this subject that he's going to cover in chapters 12, 13, and 14. So one lesson before we move on. Everything is spiritual. Everything. We cannot bifurcate our lives, the spiritual life, and then the rest of our secular life. Everything is spiritual. Everything that we do, every waking moment, everywhere we go, every person with whom we have contact, every book we read, every movie we watch, everything we do is spiritual. Spiritual matters dominate our lives, and we are to be spiritual people, not sterile people of just propositional truth, but we are to be spiritual people of the Holy Spirit. And again, some, some theologians, they dismiss talk of the Spirit as though it is uh, mystical and we need to stay away, away from it. And we don't want to devolve into mysticism, But we do need to recognize that the scriptural role of the Holy Spirit, by definition, is supernatural. It is. And spiritual things happen. And oftentimes, teachers, pastors, theologians want us, anytime someone says they had a spiritual experience, it's automatically, well, that's not, didn't really happen. Demonic things happen. Spiritual things happen. And we live a spiritual life. So don't forget the spiritual nature of your life. It's not just what you do here on Sunday mornings. It's not just your ministry throughout the week, but it is everything that we do is touched by the Spirit of God. So the essential role of the Holy Spirit, let's get on with it. Verse 2, he leads us from idolatry. The Holy Spirit leads us from idolatry to worship, to true worship. He says in verse 2, you know, because in verse 1 he said, I don't want you to be unaware of spiritual things, but this is what you do know. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. The Corinthians knew their background. They knew that they once were pagans. And by the way, the word pagans here is the word for Um, Gentile, really. So I think he's speaking mainly to the Gentile believers in the church at Corinth who once worshipped at those temples. And we talked about that in chapters 8, 9, and 10. They once lived at the temples. They, They sacrificed to these foreign deities and they ate meat sacrificed to idols. And when they were pagans, they were led astray to mute idols. 
speechless idols. And he's referring back here to what he said in chapter 8. An idol is nothing. An I- it's just a piece of stone. It's just a piece of wood. It's nothing. It can't speak. It can't do anything. It can't hurt you. But then when he gets to chapter 10, he says, an idol is nothing. But you need to know this. Behind false worship of idols are demons. Because everything is spiritual. Everything is spiritual. And when they were pagans, they were led astray from truth. They were led astray from righteousness. They were led astray from true worship of the true God. And there is some force at work that was leading them. It's not just a force, but it is intelligent. It is evil. Because remember, there, is, there are active forces, demonic forces in this world, and everything is spiritual. So all believers know... All of us know that before we came to Christ, we were not worshiping Christ. We were not. And on this side of the cross, we can say, wow, before I became a Christian, I worshiped something else. I did not worship the true God of the Bible. And Paul, that's all he's saying with them. When you were pagans, O Corinthians, you know that you worshiped idols and you were led astray by them. So the lessons are these. The Holy Spirit leads people from idolatry to the living God. That's how we we take you were pagans and you used to worship foreign gods that could not speak. And the assumption, because we can read into it, we know that it's true and he has said it throughout, that the Holy Spirit has led them to worship the true and living God. And that's how all people come to Christ. All people who come to Christ repent of some sort of idolatry. The very essence of saving faith is exchanging our former worship for the worship of the true God. An awareness of our spiritual error and our need of Jesus Christ. The very essence of spiritual faith is an awareness that we are in sin. And that we are not worshiping God. This is salvation. It's not just fire insurance. It's not just a a path to personal enrichment. It's it's an uh uh-oh moment when you recognize I am lost. And I do not worship Christ. And I have my own gods. Maybe you don't go to uh, the, the, the temples. But there are things in your life that you worship. Which brings us to the second lesson. Everyone worships something. We talk about this in chapter 10. But remember this when you talk to people. Everyone has an absolute in their life. And they may not go to temples and bow down to uh, statues and idols. But there is some absolute in their life. It might be nature. It might be a false religion. It might be themselves. It might be technology. It might be many things. But there is some absolute in their life that they bow to. Read Romans chapter 1. They have exchanged God for the, the things of this world. They worship the creation. They worship the creature rather than the creator himself. All people worship someone. Again, it may not be a statue or an idol, but everybody bows. And a warning that we gave you back in chapter 10, we can, we can become idolatrous as well. 
There can be things in our life, if they capture our attention, if they capture our resources, if they capture our energy, if we bow to those, if, we, if they lead us, if they influence us, if we fall to them, then we have made them false gods. And it's another, wor- another warning for us from the Corinthians. So the essential role of the Holy Spirit is to lead people from idolatry to worship of the living God. Second of all, he leads us from error. He leads us from error, we see in verse 3. He leads us from falsehood. He leads us from evil. It's almost like when Jesus prayed in the Lord's Prayer, deliver us from evil. And the Spirit of God does that. He delivers us from error. He says in verse 3, Therefore I make known to you, that no one speaking by the Spirit of God says Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Therefore, I make known to you. This first part is, is really difficult to understand in terms of the spirit of uh, a spirit saying Jesus is accursed. But the therefore is linked to verse 1. Since you know that people are led astray to idolatry, How do we test matters of the Spirit? How do we test what is true, what is really coming from the Spirit? We know that idols lead people astray. So how are we going to know when when the Spirit is really speaking through people? First of all, he says, by God's Spirit, no one can say Jesus is accursed. I mean, why would someone say that, right? No Christian would ever say that. No Christian in their right mind would ever say Jesus is a curse. Knowingly, it's possible that maybe in these mystery religions and, and speaking in tongues, if, if people didn't really know what they were saying, that there could be an element that would say something, but I don't really know if that's the case. But no one would say that. We know that the Spirit of God does not lead people to curse Jesus Christ. One writer said uh, there are 12 possible interpretations of this that no one can say by the Spirit of God, Jesus is accursed. And they're all divergent. And I'm not sure if we can come exactly to what it means. I'll tell you what I think it means. But before I do, I think uh, here is one example, uh, one view that helps us to understand the, uh, the, the superstition of the, of the Corinthians. One possible way of interpreting this is that Jesus curses, that that's the words, Jesus curses instead of Jesus is a curse. And the reason that some scholars think this is because on the tablets of the, uh, of the Acre Corinth, remember when we looked at pictures of Corinth and there were the, the, the temple ruins on the top of the hill. And so in the temple precincts, they have in, in, in uncovered these tablets and these tablets are full of curses and what people would do is they would go to the temple and they would worship these deities and they would call on the deities to curse others so in the name of apollo would you curse this person and some of the curses had to deal with business dealings so you got a a rival gas station guy you know oh apollo would you curse that guy and the, the gas doesn't come in time um some of them uh, curses were in the area of love Oh, God, curse the guy that dumped me in college in the name of Apollo. 
or some of them in sports. Who do the Seahawks play today? The Rams. So it'd be like saying, Jesus, curse the Rams. Nobody does that. Or did they? It's possible that they did. It's possible that they adopted some of those things and, and they saw the supernatural power of Jesus and things and, and they were cursing others. That just shows the, the, the superstition of the Corinthians. But I think that the statement may refer to this. The official Jewish position of rejecting Jesus. He spoke to the pagans, the Gentile Christians, Remember in Mark chapter 3, it says this, the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying of Jesus, he is possessed by Beelzebul, and he casts out demons by the rulers of demons. This is cursing Jesus. This is an anathema of Jesus. This is ascribing to Jesus the works of of Satan. In fact, Jesus would go on to say, this is nothing more than blaspheming of the Holy Spirit, attributing to Jesus the works of Satan. The Jews would never say Christ is anathema because Christ means Messiah, but to say Jesus is cursed is another matter because it's talking about Jesus of Nazareth, the man who claimed to be Messiah. They're saying, no, this man is cursed. Everything he says is from Satan. Everything he does is error. Everything he does is false. And the, the irony is Jesus said to, to the Jewish leaders, you are, are of your father, the devil. And he is the father of lies. So I think that this statement reflects the official position of Jewish leaders. It's the statement of the ultimate rejection of Jesus. And since everything is spiritual, and since people are led astray from truth to idols, and since we know that the demonic are behind the idols, the implication here is that one who would say such a thing does not say it by God's spirit, but by another. So, two things. We are in a spiritual battle. There are two forces at work, spirit of the world, spirit of the Antichrist, and the spirit of Christ himself, the Holy Spirit. Everything is spiritual. We have an enemy, and he will try to lead us astray. And these two spiritual forces that are working in our lives means that we are in a constant spiritual battle. Every time, and even right at this moment, when we come together to worship together, we are in a titanic struggle. Don't you feel it sometimes? I mean, don't you sense it? Don't you experience it when you are on your knees at home wrestling with principalities and powers? When you read the scriptures and you read five pages and nothing happened and your mind is blank, when you are tempted to do that which you do not want to do and when you do the things that you don't want to do, we are in a spiritual battle always. We do not struggle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers and the principalities of the air. John Frame, the theologian John Frame said that the very pursuit of biblical worldview is spiritual warfare. This is very 
odd to come from a, a Reformed theologian. You don't hear that very often. Because he, the reason he said that is because in, in his teaching about biblical worldview, the very pinnacle is that Jesus is Lord. And the battle that we are in is to destroy that concept that Jesus is Lord. So, second, whatever leads us to error is not of God. And that was happening in Corinth. It has happened throughout all the, the, the church history. And we may not say Jesus is accursed, but any untruth that we utter about Jesus does not come from the Spirit of God. Even if we say he doesn't love me, that doesn't come from him. He doesn't care about me, that doesn't come from him. I can't overcome this sin, that doesn't come from him. He's not truly Lord over all things and doesn't understand me, that doesn't come from him. I can't forgive that other person. That does not come from him. Any error about Christ is heresy. It is the doctrines of demons. If it's a, an error about his deity, about his power, about his atonement, about his lordship, any error about Jesus is of another spirit. Any rejection of Jesus is of another spirit. Any error that threatens our unity is from another spirit because that is where Paul is going. The spirit of God unifies us. So, the last thing in the verse 3 once again, he leads us to Jesus as Lord. That's where the gravity of these first three verses is going. And that's what Paul wants to make clear before he gets on to talking about charisma and gifts and all that. The main thing is Jesus is Lord. Therefore, I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God says Jesus is accursed. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. True believers do not deny Christ. And Jesus is Lord is only something that can be spoken under the direction of, of the Spirit of God, under His influence, under His leading, under His power. Yes, anybody can say Jesus is Lord. They can say the words, right? Demons even say that. But no one can make a genuine confession of Jesus Christ apart from the Holy Spirit. You can't come to him on your own. You cannot realize your sin on your own. You cannot utter those words apart from the ministry of the Holy Spirit giving you that ability. And it all comes to the glory of Jesus. What is the purpose of pneumaticos, the spiritual matters? What is the, the purpose of the Holy Spirit? What is the, the purpose of these spiritual gifts? It is the glory of Jesus. That is the ultimate. The exaltation of Jesus as Lord. And that means Jesus is Lord equal to Yahweh of the Old, the Old Testament. He is God. God incarnate. God in the flesh. Born of a virgin by the Holy Spirit. He is the ruler. He is the king. He is the redeemer. He is the gift giver. He is the groom of the bride of Christ. He is the creator of his church. He is the one who lives in us. And this body, this church, 
is to be built and edified by love in him, by the power of the Holy Spirit. And that's what Paul is getting at at the very outset here. John 16, 13, Jesus said, And when he, the Spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak of his own initiative, but whatever the Holy Spirit hears from the Father and the Son, he will speak and he will disclose to you what is to come. He will glorify me and he will take of mine and disclose it to you. The role of the Holy Spirit is to glorify Jesus. Never calls attention to himself. So, it is impossible for a genuine believer to declare Jesus is cursed, and it is impossible to genuinely confess Jesus is Lord except by the leading, the influence, the power, the transformation of the Holy Spirit. There is no other way. So, in conclusion, how do we know the genuine work of the Holy Spirit in our midst? What are the criteria to know that? Matthew 7:21, Jesus himself said about his own lordship, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. You see, a confession of Jesus as Lord is transformational. A confession of Jesus of Lord is being born again. A confession of Jesus of Lord is being transferred from the kingdom, the domain of darkness to the kingdom of light. It is being made alive when you are dead in your trespasses and sins, walking according to the course of this world and the prince of the power of the air. But now we are under the lordship of Christ. So we know that the Spirit is working, and we know that the Spirit is working here because we have genuine confession of Jesus as Lord and all that that means. Words and deeds that glorify Christ, Jesus said that, those who keep my commandments, those who do my will, and we will see in 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, when we serve one another in the Spirit's power, and I'll add, with love, and the church is built up, then we know the Spirit is present. Not by a specific gift, but when everyone is ministering their gift. We know the demonstration of the Spirit to, through the Lord's table as well. And I call you to your elements, and I call you to the table in the same way that the Spirit of God says, come, come to worship, and every time that we partake of this bread and we partake of this cup, you know what we are saying? We are renewing our confession, Jesus is Lord. When we are baptized, we say that. And every time we come to the Lord's table, we're saying the same thing. We're proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes. But what that means is that the Lord Jesus Christ, Yahweh of the Old Testament, by the ministry of the Holy Spirit, took on human flesh, suffered, lived, taught, did miracles, died, rose again, and his blood has cleansed us of our sin. 
And when we eat the bread and when we drink the cup, we are declaring that he's coming back and we are declaring that we are one body. And how do we become one body? Through the ministry of the Holy Spirit who brought us together. Jesus is Lord. Father, we as a church family this morning declare that Jesus is Lord. As a church family this morning, we we declare that we are not even a family apart from you. But you have placed us individually as you willed into this church body that we would love each other and that the manifestation of the Holy Spirit would be righteousness, genuine confession, serving one another in love. For that is what Christ did for us when he suffered on the cross, when his lifeblood was poured out and when he raised from the dead, he did so because he loved us. And so we partake together and we say, as Christ said, do this in remembrance of me. Thanks be to God for his indescribable charisma, his gift to us. And God's people said, would you stand? Since the ultimate is the glory of Christ, we're going to sing the doxology together. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him above years here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. Go in his grace and his peace and go in the power and love of his spirit.